Sponsored by the UCD Innovation Academy. You're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You with Dr. Lolly Mansi. Hi, I'm Dr. Lolly, and you're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You. I'm an entrepreneur and a lecturer in UCD's Innovation Academy, and I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and creativity. And I believe that entrepreneurs are both born and made. In this series, we won't be talking to the Elon Musks and the Richard Bransons of this world. We'll be talking to people just like you. Welcome to An Entrepreneur Like You with me, Dr. Lolly. And today, my guest is the iconic Jack Healy. Welcome, Jack. Hi, Lolly. How's it going? Thanks for the introduction. You're very welcome. You're I very welcome. <laughs> Well, I mean, I say iconic and I really mean it because you've come through the Innovation Academy, which is how we came to, to meet each other. But then I found to my absolute delight that you have this incredible career behind you, but also that you are in a band um, and that you are doing incredible things in the space for, you know, um, social entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. And, and, you know, you're really making a difference for people, including the current students that I've got at the moment. So I just wanted to have you on the show to unpack a little bit more of what it is. What is the story behind Jack Healy? Yeah, cool, great. I mean, it's all true. <laughs> um, tell us, tell the listeners a little bit, firstly, about um, sure. about about how you came to be where you're sitting at the moment. What's your back? What's your background? Okay, I am. Well, I grew up in West Clare in a town called Milltown Malbay. Mm. It's kind of very famous for traditional Irish music, etc. So therein, the music was beaten into me at a young age, <laughs> and uh, not by choice, really, at the beginning. But anyhow, yeah. it was, the was music it bags thing. of crisps and red lemonade down the pub? Was it? <laughs> that was usually putchy and sides of turf being rolled and smoked and things like that. Even better. But uh, yeah, it was all that kind of crack in West Clare, you yeah. know, and it still is like practically. I mean, it's still wild, you know, in certain spots. It hasn't spots. changed, yeah, not that much. Not much, you know, yeah. and. Uh, my parents played music, so there was always music going on at home. So my brother and myself had to get involved or be completely ignored by our parents. So uh, it was easy enough just to dive in, you know, and learn traditional Irish music. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's what just what you do, right? I mean, it's yeah, very totally. difficult to not be musical and be in that culture, surrounded by that culture. Yeah, and it's true. And it's the same as drinking water or anything else. It's yeah. once it goes in, if, I suppose it's, if it's in the DNA anyway, but it's, it's going to come out somehow. But uh, But certainly... When people say to me, what, you play music and you're doing a gig, an electric picnic or something, I'm I'm the least surprised person because right. I've always played music all my life. You've been surrounded and, by music. Yeah. Yep, and, yeah. and musicians and, and the whole lot that goes with it. But yeah, in other countries, even working abroad and stuff, people say, what do you mean you're playing a gig tonight? It, like doing what? You know, <laughs> well, singing, man, you know, and playing the guitar. But uh, it's, So what age did you start playing the guitar? Uh, I didn't start playing the guitar until I was about 12, I'd say, but I'd been playing the fiddle and tin whistle and stuff before yeah. that, you know. And uh, But uh, but yeah, just getting back to the story, it, it all being in a straight line, actually, I don't know if, like, I mean, it wobbled yeah. a bit, but I do believe my own self that line is, the line of life is very straight right. for all of us. It's a right. direction, I suppose, we're born picking a point on the horizon we don't know about and we're moving towards it all the time yeah and then all these things to get added on and all the additions and that are just right. a large part of that journey that we're going on and um i suppose in in the great words of the taoist i suppose the path is the way to find yeah. that path is the secret uh but anyway i was in milltown malbay went to school in spanish point and uh, beautiful spot i was up there last summer it's absolutely yeah, glorious it's cool it, and again it hasn't changed much really yeah. a few more houses that's about it but um and then I went to, uh, I studied architecture for the first year out of school okay. and I 
really didn't like it. I shouldn't be saying this, that, that <laughs> no, it's been it's recorded, <laughs> but I didn't like it because my wife's an architect. Okay. And I hate saying it publicly. <laughs> well, it wasn't your path. <laughs> not my bag, man. Yeah. So I left it in uh, Bolton Street. I went to, yeah. um, where did I go? Oh yeah, I went to NCAD, of course. Okay. I, pl- I had applied for it to get in there even the first year in the college and I don't think I got in the first year I applied. But anyway, what was the course? Fizcom, Visual Communications okay. degree. And I spent like four years having great crack in NCAD and not wanting to leave it. Yeah. Genuinely loving it so much and the guys in my class and oh, the whole college, the whole buzz. And um, but when I, mean, I left... You're in, you're in the whole sort of art student life there though, aren't you? I mean, yeah. you really are. It's, 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 our, it's our version of sort of the New York creatives, you know what I mean? It's the, yeah. the only place really, I think, you know, in, in Dublin totally. anyway, that you can go and fully immerse yourself in the creative experience. Exactly. And the... And even within that, when you go and have lunch in the canteen in the basement, you know the guys or girls sitting beside your ceramicists or printmakers or product designers. <laughs> I always imagine it's a bit like fame, is it? <laughs> Somebody probably, starts dancing, everybody's someone else looking has got for a fame, in there, but like, <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Well, actually, like there is, there yeah. are bands that come out of it. And yeah, right. Shows are put on and all these things once a year for the crack for uh, the whatever rag week, etc. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's very much an all-inclusive, all pull the boat in the same direction together kind of a place. Yeah. And uh, I I don't think I've ever met anyone that didn't like being there, didn't like going there, you know, graduates. And uh, it's funny, like, because a lot of my best friends are still from there, from right. having met them there. From you that know? time, yeah. And I graduated in, like, with the dinosaurs back in 1994. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we the year I graduated, I took part in a competition like everybody else in final year VizCom for... Yeah. And it was the uh, best, it was like Student of the Year Award for Designers in Ireland. Okay. And the awards were being put up by the IDI, the Institute of Design in Ireland, Designers of Ireland. And um, they, it was for final year and penultimate students. And I won it for Ireland for graphic design. Thanks a million. (laughs) And and then some other people, I think one other person in NCAD won as well, Mark O'Neill, who ended up being a good friend of mine, he's a fashion designer, won it for fashion. And, um, but anyway, I wanted to go to LA to work with Jay Vegan and people like that, okay. and David Carson, and work in. And, and let's just talk about that for a second, because you know the the, the notions yeah, yeah. <laughs> of coming from Milton Mowbray, you know, where you are in this sort of musical, uh, st- you know, historically steeped in music, and then you're in NCAD. That's a, it's a huge leap then to, yeah. to LA. I mean, it's it's it's, it's a dream, right? Well, I didn't go to LA. Like when I did want to go to LA with the travel bursary that I won for. I think it like it seems pretty small now, but it was like five thousand. Yeah, oh, that's that's substantial back but, in the day. Um, yeah, but the college, um, the college, especially Bill Bulger, who I became really friendly with, he was the head of Viscom, and Pat Mooney was like head lecturer there. Like actually, not only me, but everyone, everybody was becoming really great friends with the lecturers anyway, because they were always hanging out in the studio. Yeah, and um, they advised me to go to somewhere like Italy right. to study graphic design, pure design and communications and they I think uh, they showed me some work by Massimo Dolcini that blew the head off me it was just incredible incredible posters incredible advertising campaigns etc and great graphic design okay. so there was a woman in Dublin I presume she's still around uh, that had a design studio called uh, the Graphiconis I haven't spoken about this now in about 30 years okay. but anyway <laughs> the Graphiconis Yole Bartorli was her name yeah. and she I met her one afternoon. Her studios was on um, George Street somewhere. And uh, I mean, we're just 
skull and coffee and talking about yeah. like she wanted to see what I was like probably just my personality yeah. um, she knew my work from the college and knew that I'd won this travel bursary okay. so anyway we got on well and she rang Massimo Dolcini who happened to be a friend of hers and wow. said will you take Jack in for whatever a year and then knock, knock the corners off him and uh, yeah. his bursary would pay for his accommodation or whatever yeah, else yeah. so I ended up going to work with Dolcini Associati for a year and unbelievable a bit but uh, Massimo was mad fun. He was just great crack. Yeah. He had a son that was Marcello that was the same age as me. So yeah. I instantly started to blend into, you know. He became adopted part of the family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was great. And then like, like I just started to begin, begin this huge love affair with Italy. And I go to Italy every year with myself and yeah. uh, my wife and kids. For years and years, we've been going to Italy yeah. every year. Um it's, it's interesting those intersections of life where sort of you know you've got the idea of one place and then another place sort of suddenly comes to you and it can change the complete trajectory of how you live the rest of your life that decision yeah. or, that, or that meeting it's so fascinating to me it's true things don't work out as well though you yeah. know And but the thing is that you've got to put yourself in the way of it first of all and if you're in the slipstream or if you're in right there in the channel the slipstream is a very good word for it yeah. opportunities will come along eventually or suddenly or out of the blue. And being open to anything mm. being possible. And uh, I do, I'm not sure I believe in the look factor. I do believe everybody needs it. But uh, I think that some people are more fortunate than others yes. and they get more opportunities coming at them. And uh, I know loads of people like that, actually. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, but they probably look at me and go, you're so lucky. But uh, anyway, the yeah, I was lucky in that regard that myself and Dolcini, Massimo himself, loved Irish coffee and he used to say please <laughs> come to my house and make you mean, Irish coffee you mean whiskey Irish coffee whiskey yes, okay, and good. coffee yeah, and cream yeah. and stuff so I rang my mum and said jeez how do I make this and, uh, <laughs> or is there such a thing but anyway I got the recipe and did a few trial runs at home in my apartment and then went to Massimo's Brilliant. one Saturday night and we became great friends but and then it I springboard on to meeting other people, becoming friendlier with clients yeah. getting to meet clients build relationships with Scavellini and, and could you speak seats. Italian? At the time, I could speak Italian very badly. I think okay. I had a tape cassette before going there, which was the you know, Uelato bus and uh, Un cafe, cafe and all these things, simple Basic, stuff. Basic, yeah, touring stuff, yeah. And in a way, unfortunately, when I got to uh, Dolcini Sociati, everybody wanted to practice their English. Okay. So it was tricky enough to be trying to speak Italian, but they corrected me all the time anyway and they helped me. But um, I am amazed when I go back every year, well, I haven't been there in two years, but... Every year I've gone back, I'm amazed how bad my Italian is. Yeah. Uh, you know yourself once you live in the culture, wherever, wherever yeah, the country is. Yeah, you just is. soak it up, absolutely. Uh, totally. But, um, tell, tell us how to make the perfect Irish coffee. Well, I can't remember. It was so long ago, but it was definitely <laughs> coffee and then it was cream and it was whiskey and the, I think probably a spoon of brown sugar. And, and I think that's uh, the key, yeah. Something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a little sprinkle of cinnamon on top. Would you be... Would you be a cinnamon man? I don't know, but I, I do remember <laughs> the last time I drank an Irish coffee was probably about 20 years ago and it was in a Chinese <laughs> restaurant in George Street in London. So I, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd, say, I'd, say, I'd say that might have been a different type of Irish coffee. <laughs> so, so you're in Italy, you're soaking it all up. How many years were you there altogether? Uh, just a year. And then One I came year, yeah. back and I came home for a holiday that kind of I was thinking like, I think I told everyone I was going home on holiday with the intention of staying in Ireland. And, okay. Uh, but then it started to go into the summertime again. I was, I think I'll go back to Italy for another few months. Yeah. So I went back for another little while. But um, 
And I started to play music there with a band called The Dukes, who okay. were signed and were touring, but they lived in Pesaro. And they actually lived in a house about 100 meters from where um, Rossini, the composer, was from wow. in Pesaro. Okay. So when I go to rehearsal, I could see Rossini's house every day. Yeah. And then we played, I, like I did a, a good bit of gigging with them, like in my downtime weekends and stuff. And then we were playing a festival in Rimini. Rimini is only up the coast a bit. Yeah. And uh, there was always a big names playing, Robert Plant and all these people were Amazing. headlining it. Myself and the lads, that I, I was just playing the guitar in this band. I wasn't singing or anything like that. But myself and uh, Danny Russo, who's the main guy, the singer and the cool dude, um, kind of went up to Rimini early in the day. Had a good time. Got on. We were playing from like, you know, four until five or something in yeah. the afternoon. But afterwards, we there was a, a party on back in Pesaro and it's like 20 miles away only down the coast. And we didn't want to miss it. But I didn't want to miss Robert Plant right. because I saw his sound his sound check and he had a leather shirt on and a leather trousers. Oh, wow. And it was like 40 degrees centigrade. He was <laughs> gone. I got to see if he passes out Sex or not. God. You know, when he's screaming into the mic and that sweat. Yeah. But, and, you know, I missed him anyway. I missed his gig and that I jumped in a car that was going from backstage back to Pesaro. But the guy driving the car was, I forget his name, it was just some guy we bumped into in a stretch Merc. And he, uh, I think Danny knew him and he was saying, you know, and you know, there was Vasco Rossi and all these other guys that I started at that point to hang out with a bit. And uh, he said to the driver, can you take us back to Pesaro? Are you going back? He says, yeah, no problem. So we get into the Merc. We're driving down the coast. And I said, I'll sit in the front. And Danny was in the back drinking wine and champagne and stuff. And uh, I asked the guy who he was and was he a chauffeur service? And he said, no, I uh, I just drive Pavarotti. Um, because oh my God. Pavarotti was, I, then I found out Pavarotti was living up the street from me in Pesaro. Uh, I never met him or hung out with him, but he, like, it was a great area to be in, you know. It for sounds unbelievable, you know, absolutely right. unbelievable. Well, after the break, I want to dig a little bit deeper. And uh, that first half is, I, I literally, I've just sat here with my mouth open. It's like, I can't wait to hear more <laughs> stories. <laughs> after the break, we're going to dig into some of these other stories that I know that are going to unlock inside of you, Jack Healy. Broadcasting from the Dundrum Town Centre, this is Dublin South FM. It is great to be on Dublin South 93.9 FM. Dunleary Rotdown County Chamber of Commerce is celebrating International Women's Day on Tuesday the 8th of March with an inspirational lunch at the Talbot Hotel Stilorgan. Join us for lunch and hear speakers Aid Stack from Hughes House, Lorraine Keane and Anne-Marie Graham from Mindset Strategies with MC Barbara Scully. It will be lively and glam, we promise you that. So take time out, come along, book now by calling Gabby Mallon, CEO DLR Chamber on 01284 5066. An official event of International Women's Day, Tuesday the 8th of March, price €45. Euro. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9, this is Dublin South FM. Sponsored by the UCD Innovation Academy, you're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You with Dr Lolly Mansi. Welcome back to An Entrepreneur Like You with my guest today, the amazing Jack Healy. So Jack, you have us in Italy. Pavarotti lives down the road. Rossini's house is a couple of doors down. What happens next? Um, just partying hardy, I think. <laughs> trying to live up to my reputation. The rock and roll <laughs> lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, what happened next was like pretty ordinary because I came back to Ireland and 
had at that stage a really good portfolio together or right. actually it was probably pretty crap but anyway but you'd also been uh, in a very uh, prestigious uh, agency yeah being yeah. in Dulcini Associati was brilliant for yeah. the opportunities again like to work on campaigns for Benetton other massive brands Cavallini everybody so my portfolio didn't look too bad and I looked at a directory I think phone directory and thought ad agencies Dublin yeah. and ARCs A came up first and I'd heard of it when I was in college. Yeah. Uh, so I just literally jumped on a train, came up to Dublin with my portfolio. And really luckily for me, the guy who was creative director at the time was an amazing angel of a human being called Paul Barras. And Paul Barras is creative director of a massive conglomerate in Dubai for the last 15 years now. Right. But um, Barras was in there anyway and I went in in kind of a yellow suit with a red shirt and a green tie. Because, <laughs> to get noticed. Well, yeah. Just, actually, to be honest with you, just being myself. Yeah. Like, Genuinely, yeah. just getting up and putting on clothes made me feel good. Yeah. So in I went and uh, showed him my portfolio and he just said, uh, well, I mean, when can you start? And I was going, Amazing. Well, now? It was great. It was also so, simple back in the day, wasn't it? It was. And, you know, people used to say in the ad industry that time, if they liked the colour of your eyes and the colour of your tie and whatever. Yeah. The, the cut of your jib. Cut of your jib, yeah. You were taught <laughs> at the end, you know. Yeah. So uh, I spent, I think, probably a year in ARCs. Uh, they put me working with a great copywriter who's still in the game, I think, called Mick Loftus. Lovely guy. And, uh, but at that time, I was put working on the Aircell account. Right. If you remember that far yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. And um, they, but they were doing a lot of below the line for Aircell. A lot of design work and packaging and then some above the line stuff. But I think I did something. I can't remember what it was, but uh, I did an ad anywhere for like Valentine's Day or something for Aircell. Yeah. And Ronnie Nevin, in Sachi and Sachi and Klonski at the time saw the ad because naturally they keep an eye on everything coming out yes. of Arcs as well. And then I bumped into him probably in the pub and he said, oh, did you do that? Like he's from the North. Did you do that ad for blah, blah, blah? And I was going, did you? And he said, uh, are you, like how long are you in Arcs? He said about a year and like I'm a junior art director. Yeah. And he said, yeah, we're looking for a junior art director at the moment. <laughs> Funny enough. <laughs> how, much will, how much will be out of it? And he's gone, oh my God, this is like a lifetime's mission. Yeah. I mean, this, is a, this is Sachi. This is the big guns. Yeah. And, and he's, you know, he talked up the big game about it being, you know, a vocational job anyway. You yeah. live with it all the time, uh, day and night. And uh, I, anyway, I went out to see what the crack was in Sachi's because everybody knew about that. And he just said, come on out for lunch someday. We'll have, like we've got a foosball yeah. table, a soccer table and that. Nice. So I was out there and I met Dave Couser, great copywriter. And um, but he was junior copywriter. And Ronnie said, you know, I wish you, you know, maybe you'd think about coming to work here because you'd be working with Dave, you'd have a great time. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean I didn't have to think about it twice. Right, really. of course, yeah. And it was a That's an incredible opportunity. I mean, yep. it, considering that it's not a job you've applied for, it's just yeah, one totally. that literally is on a plate being offered to you. Yep. And yeah. uh, then it then really the hard work began though, like working from nine in the morning till nine at night at yeah. least. Yeah. Uh, five days a week. But a lot of really late nights as well, you know, being the juniors and then trying to climb the ladder. Yeah. And uh, but I had a great time there, and I stayed there until it closed down in Klonski, which was only yeah. like about a year or two later. And um, I then I went to London to Charlotte Street, the Sachis, yeah, because I had been there and I had contacts anyway. And uh, and actually somebody from Ogilvy in Dublin had said to me, "Geez, you're going to London? Like check out Sachis as well as Ogilvy." Yeah. And um. I didn't spend long in London with Sachi's because I intended to make some money, which I'd been saving a bit of money to go to Australia. Okay. For no other reason other than just to go to Australia. <laughs> right. Okay. It was a beautiful place to visit. Yeah. So naturally, I sprung board out of Sachi's after my wet weekend in London. Yeah. A few months, sprung board down to Sydney to Sachi's. 
and I met this Phenomenal. guy. And when I was there in, in Satchis and the Rocks in Sydney, I had a great time, like in all yeah. these places, having a great old laugh and making a few quid and making great friends. Uh, when, I was, when I got to Satchis in Sydney, it's all coming back to me. Now, I wish you'd given me notes like, beforehand. <laughs> I could, I'm I, loving I this job on memory lane. It's I, amazing. I used to even put it all into one sentence now. Uh, there was a man called Michael Kiley, who was the creative director of Satchi and Satchi in Sydney at the yeah. time. And so he was my boss and he loved Ireland and yeah. anything to do with Ireland. I mean, with a surname like Kiley, but he was like second or third generation Aussie right. anyway. But um, we just saw the world in the same way and he was a zany and lateral and he's thinking of yeah. myself. And he, what I didn't know about at the time is that he was spending a lot of time in the States in Satchi's New York working on the marketing theories of integrated marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, um, he uh, and he was spilling that news then into Australia, you know, in Australasia for the clients. But what I didn't know was behind the scenery, he was uh, starting his own ad agency and he was going to call it Boomerang. And, uh, <laughs> how unoriginal. But he, so I'm calling it Boomerang for all these reasons, Jack. And I was going, people are just going to laugh at that. Yes. Uh, anyhow, they didn't laugh. And he opened an ad agency called Boomerang Integrated Marketing and Advertising. Yeah. And um, he, when he left, he asked me if I would work with him. And he didn't have anyone else in the creative department except like some guys in production, et cetera, et cetera. But he didn't have anyone in the creative zone yeah. except me and the copywriter called Barry Groom, who was, I don't know, 10 years more experienced than me in the game. Yeah. And uh, when we went to work, I, I went as if I was being an opportunist to a degree. I went because it would mean that there would be nobody above my head in the creative right. department. Right, right. You've, you've got decisions autonomy. Yeah. With me. And um and uh, ultimately, he created decisions even in, with Michael Kiley. But uh, but he was like, no, I'm going to be the MD, Jack. And, you know, you'll just be in the creative department. So uh, I spent about a year and a half there with him and having a brilliant time again and met some great people. And after that, the the fun around the world was just holidays, places and stuff like that. But I came back to Ireland. I was back in Ireland, I think. Um, what keeps bringing you back? Uh I don't know, the savage and the native shore theory, I suppose. You know, yeah. I, just, uh, I connect more deeply with the West of Ireland than anywhere yeah. at all in the world. And um, it's uh, I, generations before me, like, are from there. Uh, so it's very much like in my, in my blood, you know, yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but also it's a great source of, source of inspiration for so many things, you know, the music and the creative world and that. Uh, but I got back to Ireland and I just, you know, started working in Owens DDB, which was was Peter Owens, became Owens, DDB, Needham, and worked on some great accounts for three or four years. Then I went freelancing, thinking this is a better idea for me because okay. it was such a buoyant market for freelance art directors. And I started to, I don't know, get greedy. I wanted to buy houses and have right. a flash car. And then, right. so freelancing was good for me for about a year or two, but I started to get stuck in some agencies because they yeah. keep saying come in tomorrow and we need you all next week and, and all it's next not month. so freelance anymore yep. yeah so I ended up in Ogilvy Mater for a couple of years and again I just I genuinely only took the job in there because I love the people yeah. and it is a people industry anyway the ad game and uh, but Ian Brower was my creative director and Marty Wright and um, they had massive experience these people like uh, all over the globe as well so no matter what I did what line I drew or anything they go God I'd move it to the left a tiny bit and suddenly things made sense and yeah. real clarity. But um, so I stayed in Ogilvy's for a couple of years and I went back freelancing um, just for different agencies. I ended up, I think I spent a full year free on a freelance rate of a, quite a lot of money per day. Mm. Freelance 
rate per day for a full year in QMP, publicist QMP. Okay. And they kept saying to me after a few months, you better take a full-time job here. This is costing too much money. <laughs> I mean, you're actually doing a full-time job. You just yeah. on more money. Yeah. But the salary would have been so yeah. significantly less, you of know. Course. But um, I didn't do it. I, st- I ended up like re like connecting with my old copywriter, Dave Couser, and uh, like a guy who's still one of my best friends, you know, for years and years. And uh, we started an agency called Dark Horse. Okay. And um, so it's Dark Horse marketing and advertising and it went it went smokingly well for about two years two and a half years yeah. we couldn't stop making money and we just had a great time because it, it was only me you. and Dave it was only myself and Dave yeah and, uh, well, they, well, they call, I call them the champagne problems when it's suddenly it's all working and all of a sudden you realise it actually can become a bit of a gilded cage yeah yeah. and uh, I, I'll i tell you a funny story uh, if you don't mind one small expletive please uh, no that's fine we uh, we I was out playing golf, I think, and I'm not a big golfer, but I do play and so does Dave. And I grew up playing in Lahinchen places where, when I was growing yeah. up. So you don't forget, you know, I, I play the odd time only. But uh, I went out anyway, I bumped into Colin Barrington, a few more people from Aerolingus. Uh, Fintan Lonergan was one of them and he was the head of marketing. He okay. said, what are you up to, Jack? You know, you look like a rocker with that long hair, really long hair. Just okay. And I said, I'm... Um, well, I, you know, I work in an ad agency. Well, actually, I'm co-founder of an agency called Dark Horse with Dave over there. He's playing the other four ball across the way there. And he says, oh, Dave, yeah, yeah, sure. I met Dave. He's a member of Powers Court and blah, blah, blah. So we kind of cajoled Finton Lonergan into giving us a shot at the title. Say, hey, we could create some great campaigns for Erlingus. Wow. So we went On the to, golf course where all the deals are made. <laughs> you know, you, I often didn't believe things like that, but, uh, and it only happened once in my life anyway, but uh, that day I was golfing. But anyway, we go to Erlingus, to their offices up in the airport, met Finton, great guy, really down to earth, cool guy. And um, he said, I said, we'll just show you the creds reel. Pulled out like, the iPad or whatever at the time and like flicked through it. And he loved the work. He says, yeah, real attitude. It's great, man. Subcultural buzz, the whole lot. We need an injection of this into Erlingus. And uh, so we ended up doing some campaigns for him. But uh, I think we did one or two campaigns from TV stuff and that. And he said, can you come to a meeting like, you know, next Tuesday? And we're going, yeah, no problem. Back up to his office. Now I want you to work on this, an outdoor campaign. And we're going, yeah, cool. So afterwards, it's just me and Dave again. And he kind of probably noticed that there was never anyone else with us. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Kind of, but he... In his own mind, perception it, it was, was all a huge about. Agency. It's a big agency. Yeah, yeah. So we meet him, and afterwards he was walking us out to the lift, and he said, uh, "Dave said, oh, I got to use the toilet. Is that cool?'" And uh, Finton goes, "Absolutely, over there to the left." So I'm standing at the lift doors with Finton. He's gone, Jack. Thanks for coming up. Not at all, Finton. Pleasure to meet you again, brother. It's all good. He goes, "Great." He goes, oh, "By the way," he said, "You know, how many people are in your ad agency?" <laughs> and I said. Uh, well, it's just me and Dave, just the two of us. He goes, I couldn't tell him any lies. You know? he, goes, he says, really? He says, my God, Jackie said, I'll tell you something. If I had balls as big as yours, we'd be flying to the moon. He said, Erlingus would be going to the moon. So, anyway. Well, he who dares wins, you yeah, know. And, and, and uh, you know, you don't seem to, to have any you know, problem with putting yourself forward. And I don't know if it's just that you, you know, you've been lucky or you've been accepting to opportunities that, that, are, that have come your way. Yeah, but a lot of failures as well. Of course. And somebody said to me one time, what's the best advice you ever got? And, like in absolute truth, I can't remember, I've gotten loads of advice, but the truth of it is the best advice I've ever received and I've received loads of it is from people that failed. Yes. And that, that has always stood me in like true test like of anything 
well, geez, I'm not going to do that because it didn't work for him or it didn't work for I her. I think yet. we have a culture here in Ireland where we see failure as an end point, whereas you've got a culture in the States, for example, where you, they see failure as a learning opportunity and then bounce back to move on. It's just sort of yeah. a different mentality. And, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs are sort of coming, you know, we're being more uh, authentic and overt about talking about our failures in the last couple of years, certainly, because actually that's what makes us, it gives us gravitas. It also gives us, you know, our understanding of how the world works. It's true because the people that, to a degree, the people that, shall we say, ridicule failure at some level in the pub or in where the club right. or whatever, are people that really, when you dig in, haven't really achieved much themselves. Right. And they don't understand the learning process of failure. And um, and it's just like, I mean, we could follow one-liners all day long, like from people like Muhammad Ali, you know, the champ is the guy that gets back up again the most times, right. you know. Right, right, right. But uh, certainly the people that have that I did laugh at when I closed down Dark Horse and started to hemorrhage money and stuff in the end. Yeah. It was like, ah, oh, you idiot, I told you, man, that building you hired was too big in Haddington Road and the rates were going to be on. Right. And uh, I kind of laughed along with them because I was laughing at them. They didn't know it. I was going, yeah, whatever, man. At least I tried. That's the main thing. A hundred percent. Yeah, it just, yeah. It, it catapulted me forward to start Jackknife as well and uh, do other things, obviously, you know. So what is Jackknife. Jackknife is just a branding and advertising agency in simple men's ter- terms. But uh, but realistically, Jackknife is all about being that literally knife edge uh, of trying to cut into cut new roots into the market yeah. through augmented reality or in any way possible. You know, so if somebody comes up to me and says, Jack, help me out, I need a press ad for this. I'll probably more than likely say, uh, let me think about it for a while and go back to them and say, forget about the press ad. You don't need a press ad. What you need to do is this over here. In this area. So Jackknife is not... So you're, you're taking Olivia Year's experience in incredible companies, you know, like, you know, all of this, you know, I mean, Saatchi and Saatchi, some of the most famous advertising companies in the world, you know, and you're applying it now uh, to smaller startups? To anyone. To anyone, to SMEs yeah, generally. Absolutely yeah. anyone. And, uh, but they, it's, I'm always amazed actually by the thinking at the upper end, the higher level, the echelons of like the blue chip, C-suite levels of business, yeah. how that thinking can at times be the exact same as a guy that opens a coal yard down the street. Yeah, They've got the same problems. The prob- yeah, Effectively, they're just dealing with more money. Yeah, And uh, so therein, the philosophies, you know, the challenges, the, the convincing of the consumer to put their hand in their pocket, etc., they're always going to be the same. Advertising will only always, yeah. like, I don't want to dumb down advertising. It's it literally, in a lot of ways, it's a very visionary uh challenge, etc., and visionary endeavor. And you must be able to foresee like how the market might move or shake down or whatever and create something that might appeal to them, like be as accurate as possible. But uh, does the fact that, you know, you say this sort of, you know, you had this moment outside the lift and he's astounded that you've created all of this, just the two of you. Is it is it that a smaller company like Jackknife now can sort of cut through the chaff, as it were, because in the bigger companies, you've got a lot more decision making that's diluted? Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is to get to meet somebody like me in an ad agency. Well, okay, if you're the client, you'll probably meet me once or twice at right. the beginning of our relationship, but it's highly unlikely. As the creative unlikely. director. Yeah, yeah, it's highly unlikely we'll meet again. There'll be no need to meet, like, right. we'll create the campaigns, an account handler, or maybe some of the art directors, copywriters will present the work. Right, right, We'll be right. delighted. There won't be any need for any, like, any hold, hand-holding by me inside in the office and uh, or calling out to your office every day of the week. But at least yeah. it is an opportunity for people, any business, uh, I'm open to working with any business of any size, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, with Jackknife at the moment, I am being hit up by a lot of like small to mediums, you know, there's, yeah. um, with small to medium problems, but the, it's funny 
they are all people that want to be challenged. I've noticed. Yes. People I'm working with. I'm working with Snapfix at the moment with Paul McCarthy's oh, company. amazing, yeah. And he wants to be challenged by someone like yes. me on a daily basis. And I say, that ain't going to fly, brother. Nobody's yeah. going to buy that thinking, Paul. The way to look at it would be like this from yeah. that angle. He takes it all in. and um, he's a, So what is it that you're able to see that other people can't? I don't know. I don't know. Right. I think there are a lot of street smarts involved and a lot of what you can't buy, a lot of experience. Yeah. And with the experiences, when I worked, just come back to Massimo Dolcini, when I worked with him for the first month or two, he taught me how to read the gate of somebody's walk coming Amazing. into the boardroom. Jack, they're not going to spend money. Jack, they're going to spend money. I know he's a, by the confidence of someone's movements, etc. Huh. And we're, So I was learning about all of this stuff yeah. going along without ever reading a book on the psychology of sale or anything else. Yeah. But learning about it on the fly like on stage in the moment with yeah. people that knew about it. Um, and I think, and yeah, you can't really buy that. You have to experience it, you know. How is it for the smaller companies um, and sort of monetizing, you know, the, the creative process for yourself? How does that work for you? Because obviously you're not on these sort of huge accounts anymore. Yeah, it's, I mean, anyone in any ad agency in this country will tell you there are very few, if any, retainer accounts now. Yeah, uh, There's probably a few at the top end of it, but the thing is, it's project to project basis, even in the big agencies with big clients. Yeah. So in the same way, clients come to me with small problems or large problems and say, and it could be an identity. Jack, we want to create an identity and build a brand from ground zero right. to make a hero brand like within a year and help us lift the profile, etc. And they might have a budget of 10 grand or 100 grand and I'll help them spend it properly, you know. But uh, I think, you know, they have... I might design their logo for them, something yeah. as straightforward. And then I might start working on the social media campaign that kickstarts, you know, their presence, visible presence in the marketplace for them. Yeah. Like two weeks later, they might say, thanks, Jack, adios. I'm going to go with Paddy Murphy down the road because yeah. I li like, him, like his work better or whatever. And they're like, the world's totally open for that to happen. Now there's no doubt about it. Um, I know that when I was in the Dublin Chamber of Commerce, I didn't join it this year. Uh, but I uh, was in it for a few years and I started to bump into people from Bank of Ireland, etc. They were saying to me, we love the presentation you gave on Jackknife. We'd love to sit down and have a cup of tea and maybe talk about how you perceive uh, how we, you know, advertise our car loans. Right. Right? Right. I'll sit down and chew the fat with anyone, you know, without doing any drawings or coming up with any ideas. Yeah. Um, so those even clients that size, yeah, they're wide open to working project to project yeah. with smaller agencies. And are you finding that you have the freedom now that you wanted in the yeah. old days when you were stuck? I am. I am. I mean, you know, like uh, we, I think about about four years ago, I was, uh, I don't know what I was doing, but I was out socializing anyway. And I bumped into some guy who said, we're looking for a creative director. And he was the MD of an event management company. And I thought, gee, man, I'd be really good at that because I've been involved in the music industry yeah. all my life. And uh, so I did the job for like a year and a half in MCI, uh, which is one of the largest event management companies in the world, governed out of Geneva. And, uh, but as the creative director there, it, you know, I'll, I don't mind telling anyone, like everybody knows all about this. It didn't work out for me because in, in the event industry for me, coming up with creative concepts for any events, yeah. you come up with a concept, you present it as a client, they love it, they want to run it, it's going to run this time next month the build goes on, all these other million things have to happen. Yes. And all the logistics behind putting on an event. And uh, so I'm sitting there chewing my pencil, whereas 
working in Jackknife and even in that agency, original thought yeah. is required every day of the week, you know. Where does the energy come from for original thought on a daily basis? I mean, you're, uh, you're pulling, you're, you're pulling. Columbia, yeah. coffee, coffee, I would <laughs> say. you said coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so am I. But, yeah, um, I mean, it, it's not easy to be creative at the drop of a hat, right? I mean, you talk it, about the West of Ireland giving you inspiration. What else gives you inspiration? Um, ah, family, you know, and everything. Yeah. Or like everywhere, where I, my house is full of uh, instruments and amplifiers and every kind of thing under the sun, paintings and everything else that like I get a buzz from. But uh, yeah, I think... I work within an area that I developed when I've lectured for years off and on in TUD in just lecturing art direction in the masters in advertising. Yeah. And um, they, I think about a year or two into it, I noticed that people were having a problem coming into it yeah. to, that wanted to become art directors to get their thinking to click into gear immediately. Right. So I started to develop a little thing called the psychological signposts. And right. uh, we can't get into it here today because it's too long, but basically yeah. in like in simple terms, what it is, is that if somebody's hit with a problem, like, you know, how do we sell more of this shampoo? Uh, and the shampoo is called whatever, like X. I say, okay, first of all, we'll think about it as a metaphor. What yeah. can we do for X? And then next of all, think about it like as a, like a comparative juxtaposition, the complete opposite of what it does. And I take people through the psychological signposts that I've laid out. And now all of those signposts are in my head. So I'm, right. when I met with a brief in front of me and you know, the the challenge is to create a campaign to make Dr. Lolly's brand famous and this is your USP, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, I visit those signposts immediately. And so, but I, like, I think it's like any job at all. It's the, the brain's just like any other muscle and creativity is like that muscle. Once you keep training, yes. it's flexible, pliable and can move, you know. That's, uh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So after the break, I want to dig in a little bit more to why we respond to certain types of advertising. But of course, we have to talk about the band. The band, okay. <laughs> so listeners, join us after the break to delve into the third section of Jack Healy's life. Broadcasting from the Dundrum Town Centre, this is Dublin South FM. It is great to be on Dublin South 93.9 FM. Dunleary Rotdown County Chamber of Commerce is celebrating International Women's Day on Tuesday the 8th of March with an inspirational lunch at the Talbot Hotel Stilorgan. Join us for lunch and hear speakers Aid Stack from Hughes House, Lorraine Keane and Anne-Marie Graham from Mindset Strategies with MC Barbara Scully. It will be lively and glam, we promise you that. So take time out, come along, book now by calling Gabby Mallon, CEO DLR Chamber on 01284-5066. An official event of International Women's Day, Tuesday the 8th of March, price €45. Euro. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9. This is Dublin South FM. Sponsored by the UCD Innovation Academy. You're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You with Dr. Lolly Mansi. So welcome back to An Entrepreneur Like You with Jack Healy. So Jack, listen, what is branding? I ask myself this every day of the week, Lolly. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's a, the layman's definition is that branding is a marketing practice in which companies create a name, a symbol or a design which is easily identifiable 
as belonging to that company. Right. So uh, let's take the Golden Arches, for example. I mean, you know, the fact that we even yeah. call them Golden Arches rather than the Yellow M, you know. Um, so how does how does that evolve for us and through an advertising agency? Well, I mean, the Golden Arches, you know, when you're going with letter form, logo type even, you've got to have a big story and really strong support behind it for it to succeed. Yeah. Uh, but it grew out of other things, you know, the Golden Arches. Yes, of course. But, um, and going right back to the McDonald's, Brothers in a burger van, right? <laughs> Zyler Road. Um, brands, yeah. I mean, why do they work? I yeah, guess. I mean, why, why do we? I'll tell you why they work. Resonate with them. John Hagerty and BBH in London, incredible creative agency, uh, said one time, so aptly said, put it that uh, he asked somebody, "What is the most valuable piece of real estate in the world?" Yeah, and. Um, he asked a few of us in the pub and myself and a few others and oh it's got to be like you know the Azores or Malibu or whatever and John said no it's not it's your brand yeah. because when somebody recognises your brand anywhere in the world you own a tiny corner of their mind that's great yeah so what yeah. the brand is true what branding is always trying to do and I know myself I try to do this every day of the week is to create something that is burned into somebody's mind so yeah. that like if you see it in a year's time, you go, oh, what's that again? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's that thing. I know I know what they do. So it's this, It's a symbolic form of a company's values. Would that be close? It, it, or it represent, becomes that. It becomes that, it becomes yeah. That. I yeah. mean, it has to, the values, et cetera, et cetera. Like, they all have to be earmarked. Stack yeah. up, you know. Yeah. Otherwise people start identifying that mark or that brand or that logo as being bad yeah. and useless. Uh, but, I mean, branding is around since the beginning of time, beginning of man, when man made a wheel and put a little scrape and it said, that's my wheel, right. nobody touch it. Right, right. And branding cattle for the movement of cattle right, and the sale of, of cattle, et cetera, yeah, and all yeah. those other great things. But in essentially, I absolutely believe, and I've only like heard a few people talking about this um, through magazine articles and stuff and over the years, they've, and I really believe in it, is that a brand is what you feel when you interact with a product or service. Yeah. And all those other things like logos, you know, uh, color palettes, typefaces, they're all supports and they all support, they're necessary supports to a yes. large degree. Yeah. But a brand really is what you feel when you interact with, a, with a, any business. And if you, I mean, if somebody landed from Mars and they said to you, what's Cadbury's? It's highly unlikely you'd say that, well, it's a big purple background with white swirly writing. Right, you'd go, Cadbury's is yummy, man. You eat it and you feel yeah, good. It's great. Yeah, yeah. There's a monkey playing the drums. I feel great. Yeah, man. Right, so it's like, yeah. There is the feeling imparted. You know, yes. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's, 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 it's connectivity. Yeah, essentially, it, it ultimately is connectivity. And, but it's got to connect at such um, a visceral, like, and cerebral and guttural level, yeah. ideally, on all those fronts. Ideally, immediately, but, you know, even if it takes a while for somebody to go, I'd never drive a Toyota, that eventually they'll come around to the thinking that it's the best built car in the world and yada yada, they might buy a Toyota. Yeah. And then, you know, advocacy is built out of that. So they start telling their friends, buy a Toyota, it's amazing, you know, and um, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's literally, it the, for the brands to be, any brand to be successful, I don't like care what size the brand is, to be honest with you, it can be selling like uh, a machine that, Cleans, cleans out cuckoo locks out of machine. Right, okay. <laughs> cleans dirt out of cuckoo locks. It can be anything. Yeah. Um, a huge automotive company in that uh, automotive company. But it's uh, it's got to do the same thing. It's got to connect with people 
at that visceral and cerebral level. And are we, we, I mean, have we evolved? Are we evolving or devolving in the point of, you know, our, our response to these things? Because obviously, you know, advertising agencies are trying to get inside our heads more and more as the future unfolds, you know, in terms of sort of, yeah. I suppose, social media, but now, of course, the metaverse looming. What are your thoughts on the future of all of this? It's, yeah, that has actually grown very quickly, yeah. you know, in the history of advertising and, uh, and marketing, etc. But because, I mean, it comes with the recognition that if you can focus bullseye right on your consumer market, who that market actually is, yeah. it's like 14 to 18 year old right. females or males. So or first know your market and then know what's, what, the, what they're looking at and how it's going to resonate with them. Yeah, but if you don't know your market, it's yeah. like throwing darts with a blindfold and that's never going to work. It's like winking at a girl in the dark. That's never going to work <laughs> out. So you have to know the market and yeah. then you you know create your strategy around how you're going to like capitalize on that market and get at that market. And uh, So is it all just customer discovery and research? A huge amount of it is, is always, a huge amount of the answer is always going to come from the customer. Right. What are their needs, wishes, wants, etc. Right. What is the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when you know that, it's kind of easy to write yourself a brief and go, well, okay, well, let's, let's give them that. Let's give it a bit of top spin. So what else is there though? Because let's say you've got you know three companies and they're all doing a similar thing. What is it that makes us connect with one over the others? What makes us connect more deeply with one of the others yeah. is always going to be the communications. Yeah. It's always going to be the advertising campaigns and the marketing approach. Because if I said to you, you know, my company's the same as yours, Ali. We do the same things, but we're better than you. And you want to like, frog jump me and sell a lot more, you might decide not to do a couple of outdoor campaigns and a TV campaign. You might decide to do a direct mail campaign. You might decide to do whatever it is, you know, to grab the market by the throat and shake them and uh, and therein leave me in the dust, you know. So it really, it does come down to like how your profile is viewed by the consumer and how they connect with it and how many levels they connect with it, you know. So what do you think is the what do you think is the future of advertising? Where is it going? I think well it's big and it's good. Um, <laughs> it's, and it's, it's big and it's good. That's a great yeah. start. And um it like it has to be, you know, and it has to be it's like traditions survive because they change all the time and move forward. And like the yeah. ad like the ad industry, the whole ad and all branding is moving forward, thankfully at the rate of knots. It's not like a slow burner yeah. or anything like that. Um but yeah, I mean, everybody's been hit with so much media and so much media noise all the time. There's now. a lot of noise, right. So but how do people cut through that? It's again, it's going to like, I believe, believe it or not, that it's going to go right back into the core values that were always like there from day dot in branding. Right. As long as you can get people to feel your company, like feel what it's all about and go, geez, I get it, man. That's great. So it's not just pretty pictures or information, etc. If somebody gets do you, the do you mean connect authentically to their story or is it more than that? No, no, it will come back down to like the simple values of yeah. what the company is built on, yeah. who they are, what they stand for, what they hope to achieve, you know. And those simple truths, if they're honest, you know yourself, honesty right. connects with people and uh I don't think that's ever going to change. So at the moment, there's a I'm you know I'm seeing trends in sort of you know veganism, plant based. The word plant based, for example, you mm -hmm. know uh, being a bit of a buzz at the moment. Obviously, sustainability. You know, there's a lot of jumping on the bandwagon. There's a huge amount in it, but it, that again has always been the same since time immemorial. Right. And uh, you know, it's somebody was saying to me recently, "Oh, come on, come on, come on! Like, what's the latest trend? <laughs> what's in, the buzz? Yeah. yeah, what's the latest trend, Jack? In uh, in sock fashion? Because I'm working this sock brand." <laughs> 
And I said, you know, wow. I'll tell you, I, I, had to, I had to tell this like, really nice person. I said, look, as far as I'm concerned. A suck is a suck. Yeah, I'm not, I don't bother myself with the latest trend. I bother myself with creating the next yeah. trend. So yeah, 100%. I'm, yeah. I'm too much involved in it, too deep in it to start trying to follow some ball around the room going, oh, we better use sans typefaces and we better use a lot of yellow and a lot of red. Right. I'm not interested. I'm interested in the next brand new wit and creating it all the time, all yeah. the time. Uh, but I do think in branding and in advertising as well, but mainly in branding, I think the future of it is going to really address the augmented reality area of communication. Yes, I do. Far more deeply. And I was thinking about this the other night because if, like, if you went into any shop to save millions and millions of, of tons of paper and trees and ink, thousands and gazillions of gallons of ink, you could go into any shop, like we'd say, go into a pharmacy and you see a white, just the white label packaging of everything. Yeah. And you pick up one of those white label packages and there's just a little logo on it that says Panadol. And that's the designated marker. Underneath the little logo, you see a little camera symbol like you would see for your smartphone. Yeah. So you hold up your smartphone camera and out pops through augmented reality. It's very easy to do it. Yeah. Out pops all the information about, oh, anodine, right, take two a day, yada, yada. Right. So, and imagine the like gallons of ink that we saved on packaging and no need for booklets going into the boxes and so much Right, of course. I mean, you know, com companies, certain companies are looking at the moment at sort of, you know, uh, our wearable, you know, well, of course it was the wearable Google glasses and sort of, you know, yeah. is there something that we can wear that's actually going to help augmented reality sort of become part of our daily life? And you see advertising very much in that yeah. area. Well, well, I mean, it's always going to be that necessary yeah. evil or good, whatever you want to see it as, but uh, it is because... Advertising only ever did three things and like just to like blow the smoke and the mirrors out of the room. It only advertising only ever does three things. It tells us what's for sale, where I can get it, and how much it is. Yeah. It's ne it never did anything else, only those things. So does it not create a need? Is it not, you know, trying to put something in front of me that I didn't know I needed it till I seen it, now I need it? Is it not more like that? You see, there are millions of ways of going about saying those three things. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. So the but the thing is yeah. that uh Absolutely, it is. I want to be like looking at Instagram later on and I want to see something like, geez, look, new wax for the surfboard. Yeah. And it's for cold water only. I wouldn't have even dreamed there was such a thing maybe. And now all of a sudden I'm going, buy, buy that quick. Right, right, So, right. yes. Well, the way that they're putting that in front of you now is much more selective, of course, uh, through the algorithms. Far more targeted. Yeah, far more far targeted. More targeted yeah. And it's far easier to work it out. You know, I mean, I always like that, but in that marvelous film Minority Report, where he's walking <clears throat> down the corridor and the adverts are speaking to him directly. We're not very far away from that, you know, no, from a personalized view of the world. Yeah, it's we're really, really close. To yeah, it because you know yourself from the people that you follow on Instagram alone. Yeah, you're going to get news back from those people right. all the time. That's what's feeding your brain. You're going, oh yeah, wow, this is really interesting. Not knowing that most of the world don't even know you're looking at this. Uh, sock company maybe my, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, for me at the moment but anyway the, you know I, I just think oh everybody's seen this at the moment no they're not Jack only you are seeing yeah. it actually so yeah, well, what, what's on your what kind of uh, I can I can only imagine but give us an example of if we were to see the world through Jack Healy's eyes what's on his Instagram uh, oh god on my Instagram is a lot of work from Jackknife yes and it's jackknife.ie I think Instagram and it, yeah it's just a lot of I think actually there are two campaigns on there that I did for free. Uh, I don't mind giving myself the big heads in because I did them for free for the Indie List. The Indie yeah. List, you know, is a collective of freelancers. And they asked me to do a campaign uh, two Christmases ago 
uh, to raise awareness for to get people to buy more Irish brands. Wonderful, yeah. Than any other brands. So yeah. I I immediately thought, yeah, let's cannon gun, let's like get the machine gun and the machete out and like get rid of all the huge super brands, local yes. super brands and make people buy Irish. But um, I think very quickly within a few days at the kitchen table, I was started to take super, uber, super brand logo types and change them into Irish place names or Irish county names like Coca-Cola becoming County right, Clare. Right, So the, I have a I have a t-shirt with one of them and it's the Chanel logo um, and it says County Cabin, <laughs> which I love. You see, the more incongruous <laughs> like as well, the better. <laughs> in I'm fact, only, there's not a single person <laughs> ever that, you know, I wear it when I go up to the forest in Virginia that does, every time I'm wearing it, someone goes, where did you get that? And so uh, I, send, I send them your direction. Cool, great. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was, that was very smart and we have, you know, we, in the last couple of years, we have been looking at the way our purchasing power and trying to make decisions about buying more local. Yeah, absolutely. Again, as we were saying earlier, it's about steering the people and steering yeah. the audience into even just navigating them gently into that space where they're going, oh, look at this. Yeah. This guy is writing like Chanel or it's Chanel logo with Cavan and underneath it, it says, we've supported the world's biggest brands this year. Why not support our own? Yeah. Suddenly people are triggered into thinking, nah, forget about it. I'm always going to buy Chanel or else they're going to think, I can't afford Chanel. <laughs> I can't afford Chanel. I'm going to buy yes. Donegal Tweed or whatever it is. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Tell us a bit about Bone Machine. Where has that come Bone from? Bone Machine, God. Uh, we'll have to, some other day we'll sit down and talk about famous music stories. But uh, 100%. I was in, um, I became really friendly with um, a really famous music producer a long time ago. He's still a great friend of mine, Daniel Lanois. Uh, he was making a record with U2 in Dublin. And I bumped into him by accident in the Shelburne one night. Uh, he was staying in the Shelburne Hotel. And um, we were wearing the same trousers and the same jacket. We were this John Galliano leather jacket that I Go bought in the second shop. Bought in the second shop for 20 quid in London. Brilliant. And he, he was wearing the real thing anyway. But I, he says, hey man, nice jacket. I hope but you told him yours was only 20 quid. I think I did eventually. But he, uh, we became great friends. I mean, he bought me cool shades down at Brown Thomas for ridiculous money. Louis Vuitton shades one nice. time. Said, Where are these? They'd really suit you. And I was going, cool. And uh, But he, Dan, uh, Daniel has produced albums for Willie Nelson and I, Peter Gabriel, yeah, Emmy Lou Harris, Bob Dylan, you two obviously, loads of and loads of bands. But he, anyway, he was uh, before COVID or that was good, about five years ago or six years ago, he was touring and uh, he said, I'm going to be in whatever, uh, uh, Paradiso in Amsterdam and somewhere come on over for the crack so I'm over hanging out and having a good old laugh and then afterwards we had an old bit of a singing session and, I, and he says Jesus your voice keeps reminding me more and more of Tom Waits every time you sing <laughs> I was going I can't help it and that as he, the night went on and the whiskey yeah, flowed he got totally. more and more Tom Waits yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, more Galois and more whiskeys and more and he, he, I, he said God you know I'd love to hear you sing like an old Irish song like this a la Tom Waits so, yeah. yeah I was doing all this stuff and uh, but anyway I got back to Ireland and I had been in a band for a long time called the Van Demons that was playing original music and making no money at yes, all. Yeah. And it's an unfortunate like caper and truth to it all in that, yes, you can love playing music and love being a musician. And like, obviously I'm a musician. I will be all my life. Yeah. Uh, if I play in the corner of a pub to one person and a dog, I'm still going to do it. Yeah. Or in the tree arena, I'm still going to do it. And uh, he was saying, um, Dan had planted that seed in my head about Tom Waits, a man, to be honest with you, I didn't know much about. And then... Um, through one thing or another, I got to have a drink with Tom, which was good, and hear loads of stories. And, How does that happen? Uh, well, it was <laughs> like, you know, this is quite a while ago now, good few years back that 
he had been talking to me about the weights thing anyway, yeah. as opposed to like, I only started the, the bone machine about five years ago, but it was in my mind for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Tom, we- Tom Waits was in Windsor. I can't go into these stories with you on, like, on, <laughs> on air. On air, that's okay. When give you come me, to the gig, you'll hear all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you come to the gig, I'll tell all. But uh, anyhow, the Van Demons wasn't making any money and I thought, look, let's reconfigure the band and we'll do a set of Tom Waits songs, do a night in tribute or in interpretation of Tom's music. And, yeah. Um, I went out, played one gig and I think we booked one show in uh, the Grand Social here in Dublin. And once it went out as being advertised, as I was going, oh God, we need a name quick. Let's call it Bone Machine. That's one of my favourite albums. Right. And uh, we called it Bone Machine, played the music of Tom Waits. Uh, but it sold out really quickly and we went and did the gig and like, obviously we were all pretty delighted because we got handsomely paid and had a right. great night. And it was kind of an easy delivery for me because my voice is like that anyways. There's no big uh, effort involved really. But then as the show moved forward or forward over the five years, I started to meet a lot of people and be emailed by a lot of people right. that, that had met Tom and Kathleen, his wife said, guess what? I met Tom. He told me, he told me this great story one night. And uh, so I put all the stories together. So at the show now, between songs, between most of the songs, ah, there, you tell there are funny stories. stories linking them together. And uh, it's going on and on and on. But uh, it's great fun. The band is smoking hot. I mean, everybody in the band is from, everyone from oh, Andy Lennox's band. I think Jer was playing keys with her. Uh, oh, to everybody under the sun, like in Someone my band. Someone with the Waterboys, right? Uh, yeah. Shane for times, Waterboys. Yeah. He played with Damien Rice for a long, long time. And he played with, um, he's played with like loads of people. And then, uh, who else is in the band? But Dan Bodwell, I mean, and there's loads as even uh, with Jerry Farley in particular has played with like Van Der Man and all these people for years off and on. And uh, it's, I mean, when you when you get into the venue and the band kicks off, you'll like, there won't be any question. I mean, you'll just go, well, okay, it's an A-lister band pumping out. I can't wait. And I have tickets for your next gig. And so do so many of our students from the Innovation Academy. We're coming in to support you. So your next gig is the 1st of April. Tell us where it is. It's on in a place called The Well in Stevens Green. And The Well is a venue that somebody was telling me recently was the old Dandelion Market. I know exactly where it is. Yeah. How exciting. uh, Actually, I didn't know where it was myself until about two or three months ago. Marcus, who runs the gigs, rang me out of the blue and said, hey, he, he runs the Party Kitchen in Dunleary, yeah. where we had played some shows. And he said, God, I'd love to get you guys into the well for a gig when like restrictions lift now. Yeah. And he booked us into it. And then I found out later on where it was. But um, I'm really looking forward to playing it. It'll be the first Dublin well, gig Well, I can't wait to hear some of those stories that you couldn't tell on air today. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Healy, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on and to know a little bit about your trajectory and your story to this point. If you'd like to check out Jack's company, it's Jack Knife. If you'd like to see The Bone Machine, it's on the 1st of April at The Well and tickets are 20 euros. Have a lovely afternoon, everybody. And I will see you next month. <laughs>